Hey, I'm going to pray again just before we look in the scriptures together. So join me if you would. Uh, Father, your words are truth. And Lord Jesus, you said that it's when we give ourselves to your word, when we meditate in it, that we're your disciples indeed. And then the truth of your word frees us. It has the effect, Lord, of opening our eyes, freeing us from what we were, helping us to see you as you are, helping us to become who and what you want us to be. And as we look at your word this morning, Father, I ask that you'd help me make it plain, clear, that you'd also help us to have hearts to hear the things you mean to speak to each one of us. Father, that each one would leave having heard that thing just for each one of us. You're the living God, Lord. You're not dead. You're not part of history. You live today. You're speaking today. Help us to hear what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got a lot of kids, a lot of families in Lion and Lamb Church, as you're aware. And if you look around at all, lots of kids. You know, whether you remember your own childhood or the children you're currently raising, if they're still small, you know, as the kids grow, uh, part of that process of growth is they not only are learning all kinds of things, but they want to learn why certain things are the way they are. Why do we do this and not do that? You know, why, why, why? Sometimes for parents, those questions get old. It's like, you know, enough. But of course, the why questions are healthy. Because kids are not only learning sort of facts and information, but they're putting together concepts and why things are as they are. That's an important thing. That's part of our moral and intellectual growth. It's part of our reasoning ability as well. So whys are important questions. And the text we're in this morning in Genesis 18, uh, God sort of opens the anteroom of his mind and he answers a why question. Specifically, he wants Abraham to know some things about himself. God's going to come down. This is opening some sections that have to do with God's judgment. And God wants Abraham to know some things related to this, to, related to God and what God's about to do. And Abraham doesn't ask why, but God is answering the why questions in this self-dialogue he has with himself in the passage we're in. This morning, so we'll be in Genesis 18, 16 through 21. Hopefully you have a study sheet with your bulletin there. Before we jump in, just catching up from last time, a couple weeks ago in Genesis 18. If you remember, Abraham was there in the heat of the day at his tent, and he saw these men approaching, and sooner or later, not too sure when, but he understood this was more than just men. This was the Lord and a couple of the angels of the Lord. This story will continue through the passage we're seeing this morning. But Abraham jumped up, we said, this old man somewhat comically running across to show hospitality to these strangers. And he feeds them and he washes their feet. He's the example or the model, we said, of hospitality. He communicated for Abraham's wife, Sarah, for her benefit that Sarah would have a son within a year. They're fed, they're ready to go, and that's where we pick up this morning at verse 16. Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, now I'm inferring, but it's clear from the text that the Lord is saying to himself here. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him, NASB says, your version might say known him, 
so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, now speaking to Abraham, the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. First point we'll look at this morning is just that God speaks to himself. This is a little unique in scripture where it says uh, these are God's thoughts. This is God's self-talk. And then he tells us what that self-talk is. I'll mention a couple of points in the text this morning. There's all these recurring themes in this Genesis stories about Abraham. And this is one of them, God speaking to himself. So if you remember back in Genesis 17, when God was speaking to Abraham, talking about a son, it says Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And then Abraham spoke to himself, this incredulity, God's going to give me a son in my old age, fell on the floor, laughed and said in his heart, we saw the same thing in Genesis 18, 12 last time. When God speaks for Sarah's benefit, she's there in the tent. She hears God say she's going to have a son within the next year. It says she laughs and then she speaks to herself. I can't believe, you know, I'm 90, I'm going to have a son yet. I can't believe it. Well, that same theme here, here occurs. God's now speaking to himself, Abraham, Sarah, and now God. God's cluing us in not only on what they were saying in their hearts, but what God is saying in his heart or in his mind. And this is interesting, particularly to me for this reason. You know, if you carry on a conversation with someone, <clears throat> depending on what the subject is, who you're talking about, what you're talking about, someone may be more or less candid with you. You know, if you're talking about a situation that's touchy at all, or if you're talking about a situation that might affect someone, someone might hedge what they say to you. They might tell you more or less, depending on the subject. But if you're a mind reader... If somehow their mind is open to you and you know what their thoughts are, that's the sort of the unadulterated truth of what's going on inside. And that's what we have this morning in this passage. It's the unadulterated truth. God doesn't lie. But this is a different way of seeing how God thinks. He's letting us in to his thoughts. He hasn't spoken this out loud to Abraham. These are his thoughts to himself. God records his words to himself in this passage so that we get a glimpse of his priorities. He wants to reveal to Abraham his plans, the things that are coming. He's here on a mission, God is, right? He's had a supper with Abraham, but his angels and he are here on a mission, and he wants Abraham to be aware of that. And so when I read these words where God speaks to himself, when he tells us the thoughts that are going on in his own mind, this is sort of mind-blowing for me. When we talk about the scriptures and God's word, we sort of say, hey, all 66 books, it's all God's word. And it is, and it's true, and it's inspired. But in a passage where God says he's letting you inside his mind, he hasn't even spoken it. He's just said it to himself. This is a little different. And it strikes me that if God is opening his mind to us, what a heady invitation this is. You know, this is a passage like this is, is in fact, in some way, to touch or to meet or to see the very mind of God. It's sort of to have the universe unlocked. You know, we talk about in science, we're discovering the mysteries of the universe, but God is the ultimate mystery. He is sort of the unfathomable. And God is helping us in a little way, at least, in a passage like this, fathom what is otherwise unfathomable, His mind. We'll talk about that more 
in just a little bit. Now, the scripture has some other passages where it talks about God communicating his thoughts or what his thoughts are or what they're like. So Psalm 139 verses 17 and 18 are one of those. David, when he's thinking about God's thoughts, very personal in Psalm 139. And this is a story about God knitting David together, about the way God brought his existence into being. And among other things, he says, David does, reflecting on his relationship with God, says, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. So thinking about what does God think about? What are his thoughts about? David says, reflecting on his relationship with God, Lord, you're thinking about me all the time. Your thoughts about me are so numerous, I couldn't count them. I love this. God's thinking about me all the time. Uh, My girls have asked me in the past sometimes, did you miss me, Dad? You know, when they're away, did you miss me? And this is a trick question, guys, by the way. If someone asks you, if the woman asks if you miss them, the answer is yes. But I've told them before, (laughs) sometimes nuanced, sometimes I don't feel it's so much that I miss you, but that I'm thinking about you. And that could be true whether you're gone or away. I'm thinking about you because you're part of my life and I'm, or I'm praying for you in the morning, but I'm thinking about you. Whether I feel the miss, the loss of you sort of geographically or not, I'm thinking about you. My thoughts are towards you. They're about you. Well, that's what David says here. On God's thoughts in this very personal, very intimate level, David says, Lord, you're thinking about me all the time. This is cool. No matter how insignificant we feel at any given time, to know that the maker of the universe is thinking about us as an individual, this this raises the lowliest of us to the sublime. God's thinking about us. We're on his mind. Changing gears, but a different kind of thought God has. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. God says there through Isaiah, My thoughts, they're not your thoughts. I think in a different way than you do. This is to Israel. This is to people in covenant with him. This is to people who have his word. At least the part of the Old Testament that was already recorded. They have it. And yet God still says, my thoughts, they're not your thoughts. My ways, they're not your ways. And he says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, you know, think, look up at the starry sky. And the distance between the heaven and the earth. And God says, there's that immense distance between your thoughts and mine. By the inclination of our thoughts and his thoughts. And this is sort of where this goes. This means that if God doesn't tell us what his thoughts are, we don't know. We cannot know his thoughts unless he reveals them to us. Because there's this huge distance between us. He says, you don't think the way I think. You don't do things the way I do. So unless God reveals his thoughts to us, we're not going to know them. God has to condescend, as it were, to fill us in to the way he thinks and to his priorities, or we can't get there. In 1 Corinthians 2.11, Paul's talking about God's thoughts, a little different context again. But he says there, who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? That is, if I want to know what Adam's thinking, if Adam doesn't tell me, I don't know. Adam knows. Adam's spirit knows. His mind knows his own thoughts. But I don't. It's his spirit. 
Paul continues, even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And again, there's the sense that if we're to know God's thoughts, what he thinks, what his priorities are, what that looks like into the processes of his mind, the whys, not just that God acts, but why he acts, what's behind those actions, like the judgments in the passages we're in, we won't know. God knows. We won't know. Part of that is, thinking of 1 Corinthians 2, in our fallen state, we are not, even as redeemed creatures in Christ, even those who have trusted Christ and now have His Spirit, we still have so much of our broken, fragmented, old nature that our fallen state just still holds us back from understanding things the way we will in the future. And also our finiteness. We're limited, very limited creatures. You know, I'm sorry, but the smartest human on the earth You know, there's no comparison with the God of the universe. So by our own finiteness, unless God informs us, we're not going to know his thoughts. We don't know what's going on if God had ears between his ears or the Lord Jesus is in heaven. What's he thinking? I don't know unless he tells me. We don't know unless he reveals those things to him. If God were to record his thoughts for us, if the maker of the universe was to tell us what he was thinking, this would be a really good thing. And, you know, then, wow, lo and behold, he has, hasn't he? And some of you, you've got his thoughts on your lap, right, between the covers of your Bible. And I know I'm a broken record on this, guys. And I'm sorry, and I'm just going there again this morning. You know, if we want to know God's thoughts, we've got to read his word. Because he's taken the trouble to record his thoughts, sometimes in a passage like Genesis 18, Sometimes by just recording stories, giving us his perspective. He's recorded his thoughts for us in the pages of our Bibles. And that's an invitation to us every day to come and see what God thinks about. What's going on in God's mind? I wouldn't know, like David did, that God's thinking about me, that I'm on his mind, unless I read Psalm 139. But God has recorded his thoughts for us in the pages of the Bible. And if we want to plumb the universe, and if we want to know the mind of God, we've got to be in the Scriptures. And we've got to be asking the Spirit of God, who knows the mind of God, to open up the Word of God to us so that we can know God's thoughts and think His thoughts after Him. You know, I read the newspaper this morning. And when I did, I was reading someone else's thoughts. And I'll bet a few of you have been on Facebook this morning. And you were reading somebody else's thoughts. You know, what a great thing to get up 15 minutes or 20 or 30 before you got to run away to work or school or whatever, breakfast, and just sit down with God and see what God thinks. What a great way to start a day. Or what a great way to base a life on. What does God think? The maker of the universe. The one that I'll see one day face to face. What does he think? What's important to him? What are his motivations? Not just how does he act, but why does he act the way he does? He's written down most of this for us in the pages of the Bible. We would do ourselves well if we were simply reading regularly in His Word. So if you want to know the secrets of the universe, if you want to fathom the unfathomable, know the unknowable, Matt, read your Bible. So the first point is that God spoke to Himself, and then He expanded that, and He let us in on His own thoughts. The next thing was God spoke to his own. And by that, I just mean in context in the story, God then spoke after to himself, recorded it for us. God then spoke to Abraham. 
And this is, of course, is the point. God said in verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now, this is a rhetorical question. God fully intends to tell Abraham what's going on. And this, by the way, for me, this is the center of this passage. Why? Why does God want to tell Abraham what he's about to do? Now, remember, if you read Genesis 18 and 19, we get to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where all this is heading. You could take out this passage. You could take out half of chapter 19. If it was just about the action of God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, you could go to the second half to the end of chapter 19. We don't need any of this. The destruction would still be the same. We just read, God destroyed, rain fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah. That would be it. But this for me is the key of this passage and this self-dialogue and this interaction with Abraham. God wants Abraham to know not only what he's up to, what's coming, he wants him to know why. So God wants Abraham and he wants us to know why he was telling Abraham about this upcoming judgment. He wanted Abraham to know what he was doing, why he was doing it. He wanted to share with Abraham and Abraham's descendants after him his own values and his own character about righteousness and justice. These are key terms in this passage, righteousness and justice. And when Abram instructs Isaac about right and wrong and justice and mercy, he would be doing so with this in mind, with this very personal, very upfront interaction with God in mind, what's right and what's just. And remember, Abraham is God's representative to the world. It's through Abraham and his children that God means to bless the world. And if Abraham is going to be God's representative of the world, Abraham has to know what God thinks. If he's going to communicate with others in a way that blesses them for God, he has to know what God thinks is right and what God thinks is wrong. What's justice and what's injustice. And then also Abraham is the father of the faithful, the line of promise, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs in Israel. He has to be able to instruct them in what the God that they serve thinks what he values, what he says is right, what he says is not right. Because, of course, left to ourselves, we don't think God's thoughts. We don't value the way he values. So God wants, very specifically, he wants Abraham to know what he's doing, about to do, and why. Because Abraham is his representative on the earth. And Abraham's going to be the one who passes this knowledge of God, very personal and very practical, Knowledge of God on to that line of promise that will follow after him. So Abraham didn't ask, but God wants Abraham to know why he's doing what he's about to do. In this passage, in Genesis 18, this is Abraham's relationship with God. God wants to communicate to him, and this is Abraham's relationship with God. He is God's representative on the earth. God wants him to know as his representative. He's also the one that God's in a very personal relationship with. So depending on your translation, it says, I have chosen him or I have known him. Abraham's in a very personal relationship with God. So God's communicating to someone that he knows personally, one-on-one as it were. Now, Abraham couldn't discern God's thoughts. God's got to tell him and God does there. Now, in other places of the Scriptures, God also talks about those people that He wants to tell 
what he's doing. That he wants to give a clue about not only what he's doing, but sometimes why. So, for instance, if you go to a passage like Amos 3, Genesis 18, Abraham's in a personal relationship, God's representative. He's going to teach the line of promise following him. That's who God's talking to, giving this this knowledge to. In Amos 3, verse 7, and this is a passage, this is before Israel, the northern kingdom, is taken captive. And God's warning them about impending judgment. And this is sort of a poetic uh, passage here in Amos 3. And it says, uh, there's sort of a quid pro quo. If this happens, this has happened. If this happens, this has happened. And he says in verse 7, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. So in Amos, God says, beyond the days of Abraham, God says that when he does something, he always reveals those things beforehand to his servants, the prophets. And remember, they were his spokesmen to his covenant people. So in the Old Testament, when you're reading the prophets, God is telling those guys, his spokesmen, who would then, like Abraham, turn around and tell the nation what his thoughts were, what he was going to do, and why sometimes, not always, why he was going to do it. So when we're reading the Old Testament, the stories, the prophets, when you're reading into the New Testament, something like the book of Revelation, you know, it's very clear. uh, God gave these things to Jesus, who gave them to his angel, who gave them to John, who gave them to the church. These things that are about to happen. God has spoken his thoughts throughout history in the Old Testament and while the New Testament was being written, has spoken his thoughts to the prophets to tell them what would happen. We have that record again in the covers of our Bible. So that's one kind of communication, just thinking past Abraham that has occurred. Uh, David in Psalm 25, verse 14, a great verse says, The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. Uh, J.N. Darby's translation says, The intimate communication of the Lord. Uh, The secret thoughts of God. This says, He gives to those who fear him. And you know, biblically, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this implies we know God well enough that we fear him in reverence and awe. We take him seriously. We know he's holy. And in this fear, in this appropriate fear of God, I'm in right relationship with God. And then it says, David says, who knew something of this, God then tells me, as it were, he whispers in my ear his secret counsels, his intimate communications, the things that other people aren't going to hear because they don't have that kind of attitude and that kind of relationship with the Lord. So God delights to give those who fear him, have that appropriate respect for him, his intimate counsel, his secret thoughts, as it were. And then last in John fifteen fifteen, you know, this is the upper room discourse. And Jesus is about to leave the buddies He's been with his disciples for three and a half years. And he's going to be crucified the next day. The resurrection's coming. This is sort of his last lengthy hurrah, at least that's recorded for us in the scriptures, the upper room discourse in John's gospel. And in chapter 15, at verse 15, he says this to his disciples, No longer do I call you slaves. The slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you instead friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Uh, Friendship. Friends communicate with each other. If you have a really good friend, you know that you 
will tell your friend things that other people who know you less well simply will never know about you. But your friends, your close friends, you share your heart with them. And Jesus said, guys, you are my friends. And I'm not keeping you in the dark. I'm telling you everything the Father gave me because I have this friendship relationship with you. By the way, in Isaiah, Abraham is called God's friend also. And like a friend, someone in this close personal relationship, God was speaking to Abraham. Jesus says here, you are my friends. And because you're my friends, I'm telling you what my father told me. I'm giving you God's thoughts and his priorities because you're in this close, intimate, personal relationship with me. I've called you my friend. And friends tell each other what's important and what they value and what's going on, what they're doing, and sometimes why they're doing it. Again, the point here is that Jesus calls us his friend. If we placed our faith in him, if we're Christians, we are his friends. And then the thing gets down to, uh, he's told us the Father's words. And if we choose to read what he's told us as his friends, again, it's between the pages of your Bible. Got to be in his Bible, in the scriptures, if we're going to know the friendly advice, as you will, that Jesus has given us. I don't think this is on your study sheet, but I do want to digress for just a minute about verse 19. Genesis 18, verse 19 was one of my key motivational verses for my role, pastoral, as a father. As a father raising children, verse 19 was one of my key motivational verses. And in that verse, God says about Abraham, this one that he called or that he had known, he said that Abraham is to command his household after him in God's righteousness and justice. And that it was for this purpose, actually, that God knew and had called Abraham. That Abraham would take the personal knowledge of God and his ways and his righteousness, and he would pass them on to his children. And for parents, and for fathers especially, because fathers are given, in Ephesians 6.4, a similar command... Uh, Fathers will, uh, by the way, fathers are more responsible for the moral state of their children than our mothers. I don't say this is a sexist comment. I say it because that's what God says. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, when God was commanding fathers in the nation of Israel about children, he didn't say moms do this. He said fathers do this. Fathers, you talk to your kids in the way when you lie down, when you stand up. You pass on the knowledge of the Holy One to your children, fathers. So for parents, and especially fathers, this is a great verse. That we're in this covenant, new covenant relationship with God through Christ. And we have this holy, lofty, challenging call, like Abraham, to transfer the knowledge of God to our children. And guys, again, in eternity... Junior league, soccer, baseball, football, whatever you're thinking, none of that will matter in eternity. But do your children know Christ? Do they fear God appropriately so they can hear from Him? Have they become God's friend? That's all that will matter. And so for parents and family, for fathers especially, this verse, verse 19, I've commanded him. He's going to command his household after him. In righteousness and justice. This is still, this is applicable for us today. This is what we're called to. And you know, I can't think of any better way 
than to take your kids with you into the pages of the Bible every day and just show them God's thoughts and God's ways and these stories. That's why Genesis 18 is here. To take your kids with you into the pages of the Bible and read those stories together and get out of those God's thoughts, God's ways, God's sense of righteousness and justice. And then, that's a good start. As honestly as you can, as transparently as you can, as humbly as you can, then you live that out too. If you don't, then your kids see as hypocrites. This is not a good thing. We want to do both. But we want to take our kids into the stories and into the pages of the Bible so that we can do what Abraham was called to do. Pass that on to our children. Lord willing, they to their children. But it's a high call. It's a huge thing. Verse 19 is a great verse for parents and for dads especially. So God spoke to himself. Let us in on it, that conversation. Then he spoke to Abraham. The last thing here is God hears. God takes his own advice. He's quick to hear. And again, um, speech to oneself. This was a common theme we saw earlier. So is hearing. God hearing. This is a theme in these stories with Abraham. So if you remember back in Genesis 16, when Hagar and Ishmael are out in the desert, very, very personal, very alone. Hagar's wondering what's going on. You know, I'm going to die. My boy's going to die. And it says God heard her. And so Ishmael, you know, that, that name of multitudes of Arabs today, it means God hears. God heard. Hagar and Ishmael and their cries for help. God heard. And then in Genesis seventeen seventeen, going back, when God tells Abraham, hey, you're going to have a son. And Abraham laughs. God hears his words of incredulity. Really? You know, at my age, really? Words to himself. God heard those words. And then just earlier in Genesis 18, again, Sarah laughs, says to herself, it didn't matter that she didn't speak them out loud. God heard them. Her words of unbelief. Really? Me? 90? A mother? Next year? God heard. Well, here he hears something else. Those are very personal sort of self-talk, if you will. Here he hears something else. And here it says, I've heard the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a personal cry for help, but an outcry from these two cities. God heard the personal, and he also heard the public, if you will. The city's cry, if you will. And there's a phrase in the Psalms that says, How long... Oh, Lord. It's the name of a book I've got, too, just on Christians' view of suffering. How long, oh, Lord? You know, if you read the newspaper or if you're just aware of things in your own life, sometimes for some of us, some of our own histories, our stories, we know about unrighteousness and injustice, things that are wrong, things that are bad, and not just a little, but a lot. And sometimes we think, how long, Lord? Don't you see this? Don't you hear this? And if you do, don't you care? You know, does God hear? Does he see? Does he know? And if so, does he care? And if so, why doesn't he act? You know, how long can God hear the outcry and not respond? There's a great uh, verse in Job that says, uh, the souls of the wounded... In the city, the souls of the wounded cry out. It's like that. 
Lord, if you hear, why don't you act? Well, here God says, I do hear. I've heard the outcry of the unrighteousness and the injustice in those cities. And of course, in the next chapter, you get just a little bit of a glimpse of that. And we'll talk about more about what the outcry was. But this gross perversity to do violence to the innocent. And then in the, in the prophet Ezekiel, you'll also see one of the key sins of Sodom and Gomorrah was pride violence and pride. And God says, I've heard. The sort of the question then becomes, well, if God hears the outcry of the evil that's being done around the world, you know, why doesn't he act? Because often from our timetable, it does not appear that either he hears or that he cares enough to act. And of course, God often has a different agenda than we have. And so at least one of the reasons why God often withholds his response to injustice and unrighteousness Second Peter 3, verse 9, Peter was talking about Christ's return as the Messiah, as the king with the rod of iron to rule the earth, to put down all unrighteousness and injustice. And Peter says, the Lord's not slow about his promise, the promise of Christ's return. As some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. He doesn't wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Sometimes God delays justice or acting on what he's heard and seen because he's giving people a chance to repent. You know, I'm sure when we get to heaven, there will be people that are there. They're just like, thank God you gave me that extra day or that extra week or that extra month or year or whatever. Thank God he was patient before he acted. There's another theme, and we've actually talked on this earlier God said to Abraham that although he was giving Abraham and his children the land of promise, he said, actually, it's going to be a long time before your kids get it. 400 years. And one of the reasons he said he was delaying there the implementation of that promise, he said the sin of the Amorite is not yet full. You know, sometimes God waits because he lets a thing become its full-blown version before he cuts it off in justice or in righteous judgment. So back then in Genesis, I believe it's 14, God said, the sin of the Amorite, those Canaanites in the land that you are going to displace, it's not yet full. And sometimes in the scriptures, a sin is like a cup that's part full. And sometimes God simply lets evil develop into its full-blown flower. So there's no confusion about where a person's at or what this thing really is before he acts in justice, righteous justice to cut it off and to end it. So sometimes he does that too. He's not slow. It's not that he doesn't hear, he doesn't see, or he doesn't care. You know, and in fact, uh, Genesis 19, one of the key passages used in Old and New Testaments repeatedly about God's willingness to act in justice and in judgment. So it's not that he won't, but it's often that his agenda is different than ours. Repentance, time for repentance, and sometimes just to allow a thing to become its full-blown version of itself. God does hear and God does see. Now, this story also says, uses an anthropomorphism, and that just means God makes himself sound like he's a human, like you or I. It says he's heard Sodom's outcry, but he says, I'm going to go down and I'm going to see with my own eyes if it's really as bad as I've heard. Now, of course, God doesn't need to go down, does he? to Sodom. God knows all things. He doesn't learn anything ever. He knows all things perfectly, but he speaks in a manner that we might. So in this story, it's clear that before God acts in judgment, he's got all the facts. 
that when God chooses to act, to cut off unrighteousness and injustice and violence, he's only done so with all the facts perfectly before him. You see a similar phrase in Genesis eleven five. Back when we looked at Babel, God came down to judge mankind at the Tower of Babel. And it says there, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Did he need to come down? You know, that's sort of a joke. Mankind thinks the tower reaches to the heavens and God says, I can't see it. I got to come down to see it. So small, so insignificant. But it's the same thought. Before God acts in judgment, he makes sure that Abraham knows he's doing so with all the facts before him. It's not a rash judgment. It's not a hurried judgment. It's not a judgment made out of ignorance. God wants Abraham to know that when he judges, it's after all the facts are in. Nothing hidden. Things are as they really are before he acts. His judgment is always based on perfect full knowledge so that when God judges any kind of wickedness, sin, unrighteousness, whatever it is we're thinking about, he's only done so after he's weighed everything. After there's been typically seasons for repentance or after a thing has become the full-blown version of itself. God speaks to himself, lets us in on that conversation. God speaks to his own and God hears. Let me just encourage you as we close to make it your life's ambition to think God's thoughts after him. And to do that, to think God's thoughts, you've got to know what those thoughts are. They're high as heaven. We can't get there on our own. But he has come down, as it were, and he has written his thoughts down for us in the pages of our Bible. And if we want to fathom the unfathomable, if we want to, in the pilot's old poem, reach out and touch the face of God, we can do so every morning, every afternoon, every evening. Just by opening up the scriptures and hearing God's thoughts writ or read out loud. It is that simple. And we ask the spirit of God to take the words of God and make them plain to our mind and give us understanding. And think about this just in closing. Like Abraham, today you and I are those in covenant with God. Does God want us to know why he does certain things? Abraham was in covenant relationship with God. So are we. If you've trusted the Lord Jesus, you live in a relationship called the new covenant with God. You're in a covenant relationship with God. You are his children that he's pleased to reveal his mind and his thoughts to. And you are his friend and friends share with other people. God wants us to know why he does things as well as what he does. And as we grow in the days of our Christianity and as those days become years, guys, we should want to know the whys. What's God up to? What are God's plans? We should want to know His mind, our Father's mind. What does Jesus think about a thing? What does God the Father, why does He care about this or that? Like children going up in our family, we should have those active, appropriately curious minds that say, Lord, why this? Why that? Because God's recorded His thoughts so we can know. And when you read the stories in Genesis or the praises in Psalms or the wisdom in Proverbs or the the prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus' words in the Gospels, Peter, James, Paul, John, God's thoughts written down there recorded for us 
to know his thoughts, to know not only what God's going to do, but why he's going to do it, to think God's thoughts after him. We've got to lay hold of those thoughts. And he's put them out for us in the pages of the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, help us to value what you value. Lord, uh, the psalmist said your word is better than gold, than the finest gold. Lord, than anything we could treasure or possess on this earth to know you, to know your thoughts, to know your ways, to know your estimation of a thing. Lord, it's the highest thing. It's the greatest wealth. It's the purest riches. Lord, help us to aspire like hungry children for more of yourself and more of your word. Lord, help us be those who cling to you, who with Abraham engage in those dialogues and those conversations to hear your thoughts. Lord, help us not to be stingy with that either. Help us to share readily with others what we're getting in that friendship, saved, childlike relationship we have with you. Help us to encourage each other with those things we're hearing from you and your word. God, help us to think your thoughts after you. In Jesus' name, amen.